0: Thank you, Emily. Um, my wife and I have a uh, Christmas tradition that I think that we've probably done ever since we've gotten married, which is six years now, and that is um, we watch one of my favorite movies every, Christian, every Christmas. I am a Christian, <laughs> not Christian, Christmas, um, and that is It's a Wonderful Life. I love that movie. If you've never seen that movie, you should watch that movie. It's not just a Christmas film. It's, uh, for any time of the year, it's fantastic. Um, the movie doesn't necessarily have the best theology in the world, but it definitely has a very good message. And so the movie starts off with uh, sort of a bird's eye view of Bedford Falls, and and you can hear the prayers of dozens of people going up for, and they're saying, God, please help George Bailey. Please help Mr. Bailey. Please help my husband. Please help my daddy. They're all talking about this man, George Bailey, the mo- the, who the movie's all about. It's Jimmy Stewart in the film. And then the f- scene shifts over to uh, a view of, of heaven, kind of. And um, we are witnessing God talking to Joseph, who we assume is an angel. And uh, Joseph is saying, Uh, God, there's a lot of prayers coming up for this guy, George Bailey. We need to send somebody down. And uh, God says, "Ah, you're right. It's his night, isn't it? We do need to send somebody right away. Who's up? And um, he says, well, that's just the reason I came to see you, Lord, because it's Clarence's turn. And Clarence is an angel who has not earned his wings yet. And so God says, well, send for him, because God has a lot of trust in Clarence. He thinks he's got a lot of faith. And so Clarence r- speeds across the sky right over to Joseph and God and says, says, what is it? And they say, there's a man down on earth who needs our help. And he says, oh my goodness, is he sick? And he says, no. God says, no, he's not sick. It's worse. He's discouraged. And then he begins to explain to us the life of George Bailey. And as the movie progresses, we understand why he's discouraged the world has really, by the end of the movie, seemed to cave in on George. Um, he has a, he's, he's had a good life. A lot of people love him, but towards the end of the film, from George's perspective, everyone is against him. There's a man who is one of the greatest antagonists in all of film history by the name of Mr. Potter, who is just bearing down hard on George. He's sort of framed him uh, to have have uh, stolen a lot of money. And George is facing prison time. And George reaches the conclusion at the end of the film, close to the end of the film, that he would be better off had he never been born. And in fact, he would have been better off for his family if he would just go ahead and take his own, li- own life and then enters Clarence to teach George a lesson. But I think there is a real truth in that sort of scenario there with George that many of you are facing this morning. And that is that God says to George that uh, discouragement is worse than a sickness. It really is. Discouragement is soul sickness. You You can have cancer, or you can have the flu, or you can have a heart attack, or you can have any of these physical ailments, and you can still have the will to fight you know, to push forward, to actually fight to live. But when you're discouraged, truly discouraged, you even lose that much. Your strength, your vigor, your vitality, your willingness to live can ultimately be sapped. And Christmas can be the time of year that that becomes most pronounced for us. Jerry's already talked about certain types of situations that some of you find yourself in, but I know many of your stories for some of you this is the first christmas in the in the event of having your your wife or your husband leave you it's the first christmas that you've had without this loved one who passed away and and in the case of those of you who have lost loved ones you may have lost them in good circumstances in which case you have a lot of sorrow for them but there is a joy accompanying that and then in other people's situations you've lost someone And maybe your last words with them or your attitude toward them towards the end of their life was one that you really regret, and it leaves you at this time of year focusing on your failures, focusing on what you should have done differently, and you're discouraged by it. For some of you, it may be family-related. Whenever you get around at time, you get around those certain family members that think that you are doing everything wrong in your life, and they think it's their job to let you know that, and you're discouraged when you're around them. And so the message this morning is a song for the discouraged because we're going to find this morning that Timothy himself is a discouraged person and Paul is writing this last letter, 2 Timothy to him, for the purpose of encouraging him. Timothy is really struggling and we're going to see the nature of his struggle as we go into this. But what Paul does to encourage him is pretty remarkable. What we see here is that Paul actually, among other things through this letter, but one of the things Paul does is he gives him this little four or five verses of a hymn. What in the world is Paul thinking? Timothy is struggling. Timothy is to the point of giving up, and Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. Remember this song, and he quotes the lines to him. Why would Paul do that? What is so significant about a song, or in particular this song, that it would lift Timothy out of this discouraging place in which he finds himself, or it might lift you out of the discouraging place in which you find yourself? Well, what Paul does is he introduces this song to him, and he's going to have three areas that it's going to address, that's going to really address this issue of discouragement. And those three areas that we'll go through are these, is the issue of reminding Timothy of his identity. And then second, of encouraging or urging Timothy to endure through his struggles. And then third, he again reminds Timothy of his identity. He repeats this critical bedrock of truth for Timothy to to glean on. And so let's look at this, reminding him of of his identity. Before we get into this, it's important for us to understand the real uh, nature of a hymn and what that does for us. What it does for Christianity, if you look at world religions, you look at Islam, you look at Buddhism, you look at Hinduism, you look at Judaism, music has been a fundamental part of world religions throughout the history of the world. And so if you look at Islam, you can see the muezzin who gets up in the, uh, in the minarets and he shouts out over an entire city a call to prayer that's done in a musical format. That's Islam's usage of music. Or if you look at Buddhism or Hinduism, they will sit down and they will moan and they will groan and they will chant these monotonous tones for the purpose of escaping their minds because that's what their religion is motivated to do. Or if you look at Judaism, they will use song to help them memorize passages of scripture and this sort of thing. But Christianity has been utterly unique in its use of song throughout its history. It has used song in worship, which is unique. You may have never thought about it, but this is a unique feature of Christianity that you stood up for 30 minutes this morning and sang songs to the Lord. And so why is that important for us? Why is that so fundamental to Christianity? Well, Paul addresses this, and this will lead us into 2 Timothy in Colossians 3.16 when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and how do you do this? Right, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. The function of music in Christianity is to Make the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that is your need, no matter what your circumstance. That you have the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And that song is one of the ways, one of the primary ways that God has given to His church to help us do this. That is why what Dave and the praise team does on Sunday morning is not secondary to the preached message. It is equal with the preached message. It is fundamental, so important that you sing these songs from your heart in thankfulness to God you ever get to the sermon because the fact of the matter is i will preach this message to you today and maybe one or two of you will walk away saying oh man i needed to hear this portion of that and you'll walk away carrying that with you maybe till the day you die but every one of you can walk out of this room today saying because the sinless savior died my sinful soul was ransomed free for god the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me That's what song does for us. It goes down deep inside of us and it causes the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That's why when we find Paul in Acts chapter 16 with Silas, they're in prison. They're in prison in Philippi. And what you would expect people doing in prison, you'd expect them, you know, consoling one another. It's going to be okay, you know. These chains are, they hurt, you know, complaining perhaps about what's going on. But we find Paul and Silas doing this, it says, in Acts 16, 25 through 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. What were they doing in prison? They were praying, and they were singing. Why? Because it is the truth of the songs of the faith that give us strength in the times of our trials. Throughout the New Testament, we see various hymns that were going around the early church that the apostles sort of grab and they say, let me put this in my book that I'm going to write to this church so that I can encourage them with these songs that they're already singing because they know these so well. They're already singing them and I can take advantage of this and go ahead and encourage them from that. That's what Paul's doing in 2 Timothy. A song has so much more power than just a mere spoken word. And so that's Paul's motivation in even giving this hymn. I wonder if you've ever experienced this yourself. Have you ever been in a discouraging situation or are you in a discouraging situation where a preached word to you is like I'm up in Alaska and you're a pond of water and I take this big rock and I chuck it out on the pond of water and it hits and maybe it dents the surface but it just sort of slides across the lake. And the word of God, when you read it, does not have that honey sweet taste to you because your heart is so bitter with your circumstances. But, but you can remind yourself of Horatio Spafford's song. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And you can sing that song and it gives great strength to you and encouragement in your time of need. That's what Paul's doing here with Timothy. And so what he does, the first thing, the first thing he calls Timothy's mind to, we see it here, is in verse 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. What is Paul calling Timothy's mind to? I've already told you it is his identity in Christ. One of the things we find in our lives, and this is the case with Timothy, is that we find our identity more often in our failures than we do in anything else. In Timothy's case, we know some things about Timothy. We know that he was known to be a timid man. We can understand that from 1 Timothy 4.12 where Paul tells him, or, or 2 Timothy one seven, where Paul says, for God gave us not a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. He's trying to to encourage this timid Timothy. We know Timothy was a young man because in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, "'Let no one despise you for your youth, "'but set the believers, in, in, but set the believers an example "'in speech, in conduct, in, in life, in faith, in purity.'" Timothy was in a situation where he was facing these types of opponents in the church who were stronger than him, perhaps even sharper than him, most definitely older than him, and he had the temptation to back down from them. And this discouraged young Timothy, as a pastor of this church, not to continue forward, but instead to sort of console himself and want to lick his wounds in the corner like we get whenever we focus on our failures. But Paul says, Don't pay attention to your failures, Timothy, look elsewhere. Look at your true identity. You have died with Christ, you shall live with him. He's calling to mind, some people see in this that Paul is referencing martyrdom. He is not referencing martyrdom. It's obvious from the passage that he's not referencing martyrdom because he he puts this in the past tense. If we have died with him, it's a past event for Timothy. He has already died with Christ. So what's Paul talking about? Romans 6 is where Paul develops this most keenly. Verses 5 through 6, Paul says this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It is a An incomprehensible reality in the Christian faith that when you trust Christ for your Savior, you die. Your old self is gone. And your identity, as we sang already, one in himself, I shall not die. Your identity is entirely wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ you have been bought with a price you are not your own you are his jesus says of you that you that he is in you and you are in him Dozens and dozens of times through the New Testament, it says that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That is your identity. So no matter what your circumstances, your failures, your lack of ability in this life to match up to what people think you ought to match up to, or what you think of yourself as how you ought to match up, it matters not because you are Jesus's. You're wrapped up in him. Everything about you is swallowed up in the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a remarkable thing to lift you up out of your discouragement. As Corey Ten Boom once said, I wrote it in the front of my Bible because it helps me because I'm like Timothy. Out of all the people in the New Testament, I think Timothy is the guy that, well, it wouldn't be good to get us together because we'd probably sort of feed off each other's timidity and, oh, poor me, you know, type of attitude. I'm not bold. I mean, I'm bold right now because you're not going to stand up or anything like that and come after me. But if you get me in the corner back here and you say, Andrew, I think you were wrong about this or that, or, or I'm upset with you because I'm, okay, I'm sorry, you know, and then kick the floor and turn around and walk away. That's just my attitude. That's how I am wired. Timothy was the same way. Corey Ten Boom said, if you look at others, you'll get distressed. If you look at yourself, you'll get depressed. But if you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. And that's what Paul's trying to get poor, timid, young, fearful Timothy to do. It's not about you, Timothy. It doesn't matter. You have a bedrock on which you stand, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, an eternal reality. This situation you find yourself in, it's just a little two-second slice and then eternity forever. And that's why Paul calls Timothy's mind to, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. Because, as Jerry already said, Christianity is unique in the sense that it is a hopeful faith. It's not one about just the here and now. It's one that says the here and now, yeah, it's bad, but there is something greater in store for you. And the picture of that is this, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ Christ, risen from the dead and because you're wrapped up in him and he rose from the dead you too will rise from the dead your hope is not in the here and now your discouragement does not make a difference on your eternal reality because it is wrapped up in Jesus he has done the work for you not you that is what this hymn is singing and Timothy would have known this hymn in the churches they would have sung this and so Whatever tune it was, Timothy would have been able to, yeah, that's right, we've sung this as a church. We know this to be true. I have died with Christ. Paul calls it to his mind the reality that he's died with Christ. He reminded him of it at the beginning of chapter one. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He's so worried about Timothy. Listen to what he says. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He is assuring Timothy, yes, Timothy, you have trusted Christ. You have been wrapped up in him. And so since you have done this, Timothy, endure. Stick this out. Do not give up, which is what the next stanza points to. He urges him to endure. And in this, let's look at this, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him he also will deny us. This is a two-sided encouragement. First he says, endure with him, you'll reign with him. But then the negative side of this, if you deny him, he will deny you. Now why would Paul, who is so convinced that Timothy is wrapped up in Christ, he's so convinced that Timothy has had faith in Christ, and that this is a bedrock solid foundation for him, why would he say if you deny him, he'll deny you, Timothy? Why would he encourage him in this way? Well, this is a heavy subject, but to understand this, it's important that we understand a little bit more about Timothy's situation. There's a couple of factors in Timothy's life in addition to the fact that he's timid and fearful in and of himself, and the first is that within this church that he's ministering to, heresy is beginning to creep up. And we've already seen that Timothy does not have the sort of personal constitution to really match these guys he's just struggling with it and even giving over to them in some regards and Timothy and Paul is urging him Timothy stay strong stand for the truth do not give into this and so Timothy is discouraged because of this he, he seems to be losing control of his church and in fact he has opponents within the church who are firing darts at him and you know what it's like whenever you've experienced this type of thing maybe it's at your job you know, maybe it's in your home where where it just seems like everyone is turned against you, where you've got the George Bailey mentality where, oh man, the whole world is caving in on me, and it would be better off if I would just die, perhaps, or if I had never been born in the first place. That's Timothy's place right now. If he's not there, he's on his way there, but it's worse than that. It's worse than just these people in the church who are trying to make life tough for him. There's a Far more sinister reality at stake in Timothy's life. See, 2 Timothy is one of two books in the New Testament that are known as death row epistles. The other is 2 Peter. And the reason why they are called death row epistles is because for Paul and for Peter, as they wrote them, they were on death row. The Roman emperor at the time was a man by the name of Nero. He was exceedingly wicked. Exceedingly. And because there are children in here, I will not describe for you the depth of his wickedness. He was so, so cruel. It is said of Nero, actually one year prior to the writing of 2 Timothy, Nero set fire to portions of Rome, the slum areas, because Nero wanted to expand Uh, his building projects in Rome so he just set them on fire people may die who cares and then while Rome burned you may have heard this before it is said that Nero stood on the roof of his palace and played his fiddle because in his mind it was as if he was on a stage and the backdrop was the Roman city ablaze and then after this naturally this engendered some suspicion from people Nero started to get blamed for this fire, so Nero said, No, it wasn't me, it was the Christians. And the persecution on the Christians that unleashed at that time was severe. Very, very severe. In Paul's case, it ended with his beheading. In Peter's case, it ended with his crucifixion. And here's Timothy, his mentor is in prison Timothy has already been to prison once he is in a major Roman city which means persecution is at his doorstep also not only is he facing opposition from within his church but he may be giving his life for this and Paul you know what you may have seen Jesus on the road to Damascus but I'm taking your word for it I'm not so sure that I'm in for this in the long haul And so Paul is encouraging him here. Endure, Timothy. Remember, keep the faith, because the promise is this. If you endure, if you endure, you will reign with Christ, for he is the offspring of David. And that is your hope. After all, Timothy... 2 Corinthians 4.17, remember what I wrote to the Corinthians, that this is momentary light affliction which is producing within us an eternal weight of glory. So if your circumstances are dire right now, and things are bad for you in your environment and people are opposing you, this is light. Even if, even if it gets to the point of the severity of persecution in America, which is a possibility at some point, a likelihood eventually, even if, momentary, it's just momentary, and after this, eternity with Christ forever, reigning with him, no longer enduring suffering. That's why you endure, Timothy, overcome, as, he writes to, as John writes to the people of Revelation. Overcome, and your name will be written on a pure white stone. Overcome, and you will be with Christ in heaven forever. That's the hope of the Christian. In a sense, what Paul might say to Timothy is this. Timothy, the worst thing they can do to you is kill you. And honestly, that's the worst thing that can happen to you if you endure. The very worst thing that can happen for you is that your life be taken from you. And for the Christian, that's not a bad thing, is it? For the Christian, that is a glorious thing because you will be changed. You will be in the presence of Christ forever. But there is a far worse thing that can happen to us. And that is, if we deny Christ, he will deny us. If we deny him, this hymn says, he will deny us. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Listen to a couple other passages. Colossians 1, through 23. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The reality in the Christian's life is you will prove by your endurance whether or not you truly trusted Christ in the first place. And so there is a threat that looms over poor Timothy. If he denies Christ, he will prove to not have been a redeemed individual in the first place. And we need to feel that on ourselves also. We can have circumstances in our life that make us lean towards denying, perhaps by word, you know, like Judas did, actually betraying Christ. Or, like 1 Timothy 1.16 says, this is perhaps a more likely event for us. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Our lifestyles can deny Christ just as easily as our tongues can. And so, Paul is urging, endure. Do not deny him, for he will deny you also. And so, an examination needs to be done on Timothy's life, and an examination needs to be done on all of our lives to look at ourselves. Is there in me a denial of the reality of the gospel? Maybe I'm professing it with my lips, but is my heart far from God? Am I just doing this whole Christian thing to get me out of hell, or am I honestly? following the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart soul mind and strength and sure I struggle sure I struggle but with what is the predominant reality in my life is that I am pursuing Jesus I am not ashamed of the gospel I am following him now in every one of our lives you're going to find these areas of rebellion inside of you that spring up and make you want to deny and make you want to go after the sins of the flesh and make you want to fit in with the crowds that are denying Christ in which case the next verse of the song is precisely what lifts us ultimately out of this depth of, dip- of discouragement and depression and gives us sustaining grace. And that is the reminder of the reality of your identity with Christ once more, which Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what is the difference here between denying and being denied and being faithless and Christ being faithful? In the first case, it's a denial without repentance. It's like Judas, who after he betrayed Christ, sure, he was sad about it, but he never repented. Instead, he took his own life. And the other is like Peter, who at the upper room with Christ said, Lord, I will never deny you. And Jesus said, really, Peter? Tonight, I assure you, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And then as the night progressed and Jesus was arrested and Peter sort of sneaked down into the temple court and there warmed himself by a fire and there was this terrifying 13-year-old slave girl who said, you're one of them, aren't you? And in the face of this 13-year-old girl, Peter said, no, I don't know the man. And then another said, I can tell by your accent that you're one of them. No, I've never seen him before. I've seen you with him before. No, I do not know Jesus Christ. And then the rooster crows, and then it dawns on him. What about? And he flees out of the temple courtyard and goes to the gate and weeps bitterly. But the words in Peter's life prior to this were those of Jesus' which he said, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you are restored, you will return and restore your brothers. And that's what we see Peter doing. We see Peter who did deny, who was faithless, but Christ remained faithful through that. One of the ways I think that this helped, that I think of, of that helps me understand this a little bit is when I was a teenager, I was a very, very rebellious uh, young guy. Some of you knew me back then. I was into drugs and alcohol pretty heavily, and when I turned 16, um, I uh, was on Main Street in Marion. And uh, the blue lights come up in the rearview mirror, which is always a pleasant feeling. And uh, I pull over to the side of the road. And through a series of events, I was dragged out of my car and handcuffed and bent over the front of the vehicle. My pockets were searched. And uh, a bag of marijuana was found in my pocket. And then my parents were called, which was bad. I think I would have rather gone to jail. And, um, and so I wasn't sent into the jail. I, uh, they allowed me to go home with mom and dad, and the car ride from Marion to PG was very long, and my parents were just severely disappointed in me. Uh, they didn't know that I'd been into that stuff at all, and so their rude awakening was not finding it in the dirty laundry. Their rude awakening was getting a phone call from the sheriff's department You know, and picking me up with handcuffs on my wrists, which is horrible for any parent, for sure. And it was horrible for me, (laughs) most definitely. But what didn't happen then was my mom did not kick me out of the house. She could have, but she didn't. She loved me, she disciplined me, I was grounded for sure, I think like a month or two months or something like that, and, uh, and she stuck it out with me. She, because she loved me, though I was faithless at this time, she remained faithful. And in a sense, you could say that if she denied me at that time, because her love for me was so significant, You could say that if she denied me, she would have been denying a part of herself. And so she never did. She stuck it out and ultimately, by her persistence with me and her prayers, at the age of 17, I was saved. I give that analogy because it helps us get towards what's going on here with Christ's faithfulness because he cannot deny himself. But I'll tell you this, it only gets us toward it. The analogy falls tremendously short, because there is a point of this which no earthly analogy could even begin to compare. The reality is it loops immediately back around to that beginning truth claim that Paul gave to Timothy. If we have died with him, we shall live with him. You are one with Jesus. If you have trusted Christ, if you have momentary lapses of obedience or or a submission, or of, uh, of following him, momentary lapses where you're convicted and you repent. It's not only that Jesus loves you so much that he's not going to die deny you. That's true, but it's deeper than that. It's that it is impossible for him to deny you because you are one with him. And so do not fall down into the depths of your discouragement.